0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be chatting about what is almost certainly the stupidest cabinet position in the federal government. And how do we know it's the stupidest cabinet position? Because even the cabinet minister herself can't explain who it is she represents. We're also going to be chatting about investing, especially if you are a younger person investing. And by younger, I mean just someone who is getting started in your career or before, because that is becoming very difficult. How do you do it? Who do you speak to? Do you just do it online? Do you do it through one of those companies that you can do it on your computer? It's important. We're going to be chatting about that one. And we'll be chatting about Christine Sinclair, who just Wednesday became the all-time leading goal scorer in international soccer, man or woman, is she Canada's most underrated athlete of all time? We'll discuss. Stick around.
1: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
0: So here's the story. A few months ago, uh, you will recall that when the federal liberals won a minority government and started handing out their cabinet posts, we learned that Mona Fortier would be the minister of middle-class prosperity. Now it was a new position and it sounded a little more that like an extension of a campaign catchphrase than a real job. It had never been there before, a little flaky, but we figured, I think most people figured, okay, well, at least the, the government will come up with something to explain what this job is. Well, In the House of Commons, a Conservative member asked Ms. Fortier to um, provide some numbers and a percentage and sort of outline who is the middle class. I mean, if we're going to have a cabinet minister who is for the middle class, who is the middle class? Uh, Her answer, and this is her quote, Canada has no official measure of what constitutes the middle class. So in other words, the person responsible for bettering the middle class says such a thing doesn't even exist, or at least not in a way that we can judge. So we can't really define it, so we don't know if we're doing well or doing poorly. It, 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 let me bring in Stephen LeDrew. He's a commentator, former president of the Liberal Party of Canada, and a man who I believe is uniquely positioned to see through BS when it's placed in front of him. Mr. LeDrew, how are you this evening? <laughs> God, I'm
2: very, very well. I'm chuckling because I think you're the master of understatement on this one tonight. When your intro, you said, it sounded a little flaky. and <laughs> You're just being, Scott, you're just being too shy.
0: I was trying to be somewhat politic. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
2: Don't be politically correct. Not, I would never accuse you of doing that. But really, a lot of people said, well, you know, it's a little flaky. But let's just see what happens. I thought it was a lot flaky. I thought it was total imbecilic. I feel badly for the poor minister because she has been handed, you know, a bag of poop on this <laughs> thing uh, to get into the cabinet and then to have this as your portfolio. There's no ministry. There's no officials. Her job really is to carry the bag as a minister of finance, but the government wanted to have the, um, I guess, put out the image that, you know, like just there's a a, a woman for, um, a minister for uh, for, for for women and their prime minister is already the minister for feminists. He's the feminist. So they want to have somebody for the little, middle class. So they think the middle class will be, you know, feel good about themselves. Well, there's someone out there looking out for us.
0: But Stephen, who among us, and I'm not being funny about this, no? do, okay. most, do most people believe they're in the middle class? I don't know. I can't tell if most people believe they're middle class or most people believe they're not middle class.
2: Surveys in the past... Um, have always are generally shown that people think they're in the middle class. So most this means she's the
0: minister of everyone, really?
2: Well, yes, maybe she should be prime minister. Um, <laughs> but, but, Scott, it's, um, you know, most people in Canada, I know some of your viewers are going to take me to task for this, but unless you're in a, a um, you know, a native village in northern Canada, and some of them are running really, really well, I know some of them very well, others You think it's out in a third-world country out of, you know,
0: northern India.
2: I mean, it's just pathetic. You don't think it's even in Canada. But if you're not in one of those villages, by and large, you have running water. You have food. You may have to, you know, have assistance with that. But most people have a roof over their head if they want a roof over their head. And by and large, education is available. And I'll tell you, 100 years ago, if you had all those things and 95% of the people had it, they'd say, wow, this is a successful society. We are a successful society. We have a huge middle class. It's a different middle class if you're in downtown Hamilton than if you are in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland
0: and that's her point that's her i mean and i look i understand her point and i think you're right i think you're right that she has been handed an impossible thing that that uh, justin trudeau has said go out and stand in front of the media and tout the party line and she is flailing because how do you possibly do this because you're right someone who lives in downtown toronto is living a different lifestyle with the same income as someone who lives in a rural part of pei it's just the reality but they could both be considered middle class i guess
2: I think that they would consider themselves middle class and their neighbors would consider themselves middle class. And what kind of feminist is a prime minister to make this woman the minister of the middle class? He is, I mean, he is not doing her any favors. And indeed, um, you know, I mean, we have a huge middle class in, uh, in Canada. And no one, I didn't hear anybody in the election, even in the opposition, since the cabinet saying, gosh, we've got to be out there, Scott. We've got to be out there and work for this middle class. We've got to be out there and deal with jobs. We've got to deal with um, teacher strikes in Ontario. We've got to deal with productivity across our country. We have, a, we have to deal with a tax act that no one can understand that you know should be completely revitalized, cut back, and made easier because if you want to talk about what you can do for middle class, most people in middle class have to fill out a tax return, yeah. and I don't know, Scott. It'd be an interesting survey. I don't know, Scott, how many people fill out their own anymore because it is daunting.
0: Well, th- thank you for thank goodness for QuickTax because uh, if I had to do it by hand like the old days, I'd uh, yeah, I don't know what I'd do. Yeah, Let-
2: there's a whole bunch of people who can't use QuickTax.
0: That's that is true. Let me take a very quick break.
2: and get somebody.
1: fill it out for them you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml
0: we're talking about a um a question that was asked in the house of commons of the federal ministry of middle class prosperity Uh, a question was asked of her by a tory member this week on monday what is the middle class and the answer was well we don't really have any way to determine what the middle class is it was one of those answer is that you just sort of shake your head and you go, how how is this possible? Stephen LeDrew, commentator, former president of the Liberal Party of Canada, joins us. Stephen, this may be, there's a lot of things about this, but this may be to me one of the most stunning things. They have to know. There, there are millions of people, not millions, there are lots of people working for any political party, lots of smart people. They have to know this question is going to come up at some point. How were they, surely you would come up with some explanation for what the middle class is. So, Madame Fortier would have some answer at the ready when this question came, and yet it appears not to be the case.
2: Well, and also look, when the cabinet was uh, sworn in before Christmas, so they've had a long time since then, and they had the questions that day. She was asked about, well, what's the middle class, and she said, "I'm just going to get into it." Um, so they've had a lot of time since then, Scott, and they have still have not come up with an answer, and which shows uh, not only was it a silly thing to create. Which shows that they were, you know, pandering to some sort of idea of Canadianism, and but also shows what is this woman doing? Like, you know, when she goes to work every day, what, what is she doing, Scott?
0: Well, I think she's keeping alive a campaign slogan so that when the party falls, when the government falls, as it will, it's a minority government, and they we roll into an election, they can say, look how valuable, we consider, the middle class. We had an entire cabinet position set aside for this. I, I don't know if it means anything, but it seems to me like it's just an ongoing campaign.
2: Well, it doesn't mean anything, because um, I think you're being generous, uh, even in the question on that one, Scott, because it doesn't mean anything. Uh, they will say what you, you said. There's no question about that. I'm just thinking, though, as we discuss this, maybe one of the, the problems is if they said, well, you know, it's between... Um, $10,000 a year and $40,000 a year if you live in Newfoundland, and it's between $50,000 a year and $150,000 a year if you live in Hamilton. Right. Go and to our website.
0: In, Go to our website and see if you fall into the middle class.
2: Yeah. And so do that. But then there's going to be another statistic, though. That statistic, Scott, is going to be, well, across Canada, there are 90% of people who fall into what we've defined as middle class. And, well, where are the others? One, they're going to be in the billionaire class. I don't know what the percentage of that is. That's going to be worthy of note. And then there are going to be other people who are poverty-stricken. And that's also going to be a problem for the government. So they set themselves up. I hear what you're saying. They set themselves up to say, we're doing great things for the middle class. But they're also setting themselves up to be criticized for the fact that there's 10,000, I'm sorry, 10% of the people, which, uh, you know, what would be, 3,500,000 3,500,000 people
0: are poverty-stricken. And why? They don't want that. And Stephen, this, this is the biggest question to me. You are a government that has talked about how you are progressive and how you are socially aware and all these things. Why would you not? Because I look down the entire list of cabinet ministers. Even if you want to have a minister of the middle class, why would you not also have a cabinet minister, a minister of Canada's poor, to say we're looking out after the very least of us to help them?
2: Very good idea because you know, the middle class. If you say, think you're middle class, you're okay. You would because think, Mr. Dealing with people who are okay, you're absolutely right. It should have been somebody dealing with those who are destitute because they're the ones that need the help.
0: Yeah, the, I mean, the beauty of this, I suppose, is because of the complete fluffiness of everything there is no way that we can prove or disprove whether or not she's being successful. So it's guaranteed that when we talk about her, when the government talks about her, she's, she's going to be doing a bang-up job, because how can you disprove a negative when we don't even know who she's working for?
2: <laughs> You're absolutely right. And one of the great things is the word you just used, the fluffiness of it. I think that may be one of the best adjectives for this government, the fluffiness of it, because it has been there since October, and... I can't think of anything that this government has done.
0: Well, I'm going to run for office, Stephen. I've decided because this has convinced me. She's getting paid uh, no, two hundred and sixty-four, two hundred and sixty-four do thousand dollars. Not fluffy. Well, but I'm going to run, and then when I get in, I'm going to lobby for a role of Minister of Unicorn Preservation. And when they ask me what are you doing, I'm going to say, "How many unicorns died in Canada this year?" And someone says, "None." I say, "See, see how well, how good a job I'm doing." There's, You've see? done a
2: good, good job. And then they'll say, okay, what have you done about coronavirus?
0: <laughs> well, and then, yeah, well, then that's, you're going to get stuck. That's Scott. another one. Uh, Stephen LeDrew, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for the time today.
1: It's always fun with you, Scott. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We occasionally talk about finances on the show, people's finances, investing, that kind of thing, retirement. Uh, And I want to do that for the next few minutes because there's something that has been, that I've been wondering about that I saw something, I've seen a few things and I wanted to ask someone about. Uh, You have seen commercials on TV, for example, for do-it-yourself real estate. You know, the one where now you don't need to have a real estate agent, you just get the package, go online, do it all yourself, no commission, sounds great, sounds fantastic. Then never used it. I don't know if it's good or not. Uh, There are commercials for do-it-yourself travel. Probably most of us have used Travelocity or Expedia or that Travago guy who (laughs) is on every second commercial, Uh, but we've probably done this. We've booked some kind of travel ourselves. We've essentially cut out a lot of the travel agency business. Well, there are also commercials for do-it-yourself retirement planning, investing, You've probably seen these. You know the one I'm talking about with the the young mother with her daughter on her lap talking to the family's longtime advisor telling her, I don't want to pay for your, I can't afford to pay for you as well for my retirement. You know the one I'm talking about. You've probably seen it. Uh, it is very modern. It is very convenient, I'm guessing, probably. I've not used it, but probably. question is, is it smart? Is this the way we should be going? Or do we still need people In the mix. Well, Sean Moyer is a portfolio manager at Mandeville Private Client Incorporated. He joins us now. Sean, how are you today?
3: I'm doing very well, Scott. How are
0: you? I'm great. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for joining us. I don't know if what I'm talking about is a, just a modern thing or a millennial thing or both, Um, but it seems as though many of us through a variety of ways in our society have been told that it is smart to cut out the middleman and do things ourselves. And in some cases that makes a ton of sense. I don't know if that makes sense though, when it comes to financial planning, does it?
3: Well, I mean, I think it depends on your type of personality. I think some people are are self-starters. Some people get up, first thing they do is, you know, check their wallet. How much money do I have? Where am I going today? What might I be spending it on? They're they're focused and they're disciplined for their finances. But the truth is, is most of us are very emotional creatures and that can get in the way when it comes to retirement planning, investing, and that can cause a lot of trouble.
0: I don't even... Sorry, go ahead.
3: uh, Yeah, no worries. One of the things I was uh, about to mention is that when you're working with a, a professional, one thing you get in life is, is a coach through that. Um, when you're doing it by yourself, you maybe don't have that partner to bounce ideas off. of.
0: I have not used one of the online do-it-yourself investing tools, uh, so I'm, I, I'm probably not perfect to speak on this one, but I, I, have you ever tried one? Have you ever gone and looked at them?
3: I certainly have, and, and some of them are uh, beautiful user interfaces, and they're very attractive. But uh, at the same time, when you're talking to a computer, it's always somewhat of an alien experience you know, there's uh, there's definitely surveys that you can do that help guide you in making some decisions, but ultimately it's a preformed package. And uh, sometimes when you're looking for financial advice for you, this is what's difficult about finding good advice, whether it be on the radio, television, or in print, is that it's general advice and, and not necessarily specific for your circumstances. And working with a, a professional who has your best interest in mind can help Make it your own rather than make it something general that you might find online. But uh, you mentioned earlier about millennials and, uh, and their approach to investing. And there's a lot of targeted advertising towards millennials using these services because, you know, being a millennial myself, I know I spend a lot of time on my smartphone and on my tablet. And it seems just natural to go there where having a conversation or face to face with somebody in a suit may not feel as natural.
0: Well, and I'm assuming, I don't know this to be the case, but I'm assuming they must do an okay job or else nobody would be going there. People would be sending, putting things all over the internet saying, avoid company X at all costs because I lost all my money on here. It it must be somewhat plausible or somewhat practical.
3: Again, I think it depends on what type of personality you are and whether or not that makes sense for you. What I would say is that, anything that helps you develop a framework is very important because that's what retirement planning and financial planning is all about is having a solid framework. The thing that I question about whether it can necessarily assist is control of emotion. You know, when you read uh, certain headlines, you might think the world is coming to an end. (laughs) I actually have a a chart that I took a look at uh, at the end of the year. And it it basically talks about the fact that we've had 10 years of very strong growth on the S and P 500. If you had invested, $100, let's say it would be worth $500 today, about five times the amount of return. But then I took a look at the chart. And what was interesting is about every six months, there was a headline, you know, like the US debt being downgraded, the fiscal cliff, uh, Ebola virus contagion, or the markets falling over a 1000 points on the Dow in a day, all these headlines pop up. And then I think to myself, if I was doing this by myself, and I was you know, not necessarily fully versed hmm. in investments, how comfortable would I feel pushing through that? And there's been a number of uh, advice studies done by Russell and other industry experts where they take a look at the average return of somebody who does it themselves and the return of somebody who speaks with an advisor. And there can be a couple of percentage point different benefit just by talking to somebody. And whether that means staying invested or whether that means having the appropriate advice, it can go a long way.
0: Are people in the financial planning world worried about these kind of things? Because again, like if I'm a travel agent in the last 10 years, I, I'm probably devastated by what's happened because so many people now can do almost everything, almost everything that was once only done by travel agents now online and do it theirself. Is this the concern that this may happen?
3: Well, I don't personally take it as a concern. I can see that being the case, but... The reason why I'm optimistic about it is because any time we grow as a society, as a person, it's when we're challenged. And if we have competition that exists, it just forces us to look in the mirror and hone our skills, hone our approach, make sure that we maybe have access to investment opportunities that you can't get at an online Hmm. brokerage. Maybe we approach clients with a, a specific tool for uh, intergenerational wealth transfer or insurance planning. Maybe we build a more well-rounded practice but all of these things help us become better at what we're doing and competition simply makes us sharper. I'm sure Usain Bolt would, uh, mm. would state that if he didn't have all these great athletes pushing him, he wouldn't have set an all-time human record for the 100-meter dash. So I think competition is important.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We are talking about investing, especially now that there are options. And I mean, it's obviously a good idea that you want to invest your money and you want to get some return on your savings and all that kind of stuff. But we now see these TV commercials all the time. You don't need an investor. And I, Some of these I I start to wonder about when I see these ads. So I wanted to bring in Sean Moore. He's a portfolio portfolio manager at Mandeville, private client incorporated. He rejoins us now. Sean, we have been conditioned, in addition to uh, thinking that it's always there are easier ways and we can do things online, there's something else that I think a lot of people have been conditioned, and that is... You don't necessarily want to trust the man. Everybody wants to take something from you. They, everyone's got an angle. Everyone's got something they want to take from you. Uh, look after yourself, and therefore, if I do this myself, I don't have to pay you or some other advisor a fee that is going to take money out of my own pocket. And that's that's the theme of those whole of all those TV commercials. What about that idea that by doing it myself, I'm just saving myself a ton of dough?
3: Well, I think you bring up a couple of good points, and you know, the first thing is, can you trust whomever you're working with? Can you trust the professional? So it's important to consider whomever you're working with, what is their professional designation? What is their relationship with you? Because this business has a lot of different licenses that can uh, can help advise. And it comes from as simple as a, a salesperson to as uh, as complicated as a portfolio manager. So somebody like myself, I have a fiduciary responsibility to the investment plan that we set down together and that's a that's a heavy set of responsibilities. so it's important to know what classification your advisor works as it's important it, it's important to know also how they get paid ask difficult questions about whether there's embedded costs in your investments whether there's a, a fee for investing whether you can set up a relationship where it's a per hour type charge it, there's so many options in this field and and like you said that's that's a good thing it helps competition But you have to ask those questions. The same thing goes with what can be found online. Oftentimes, they'll start with that, you know, this is low cost, don't pay any fees, come in the door. But then when you start to feel a little bit lost with the universe that exists out there, they'll say, well, try our pre-constructed portfolio. Then you have to take a look under the hood there and say, well, what does that pre-constructed portfolio cost? Of course, once you've already moved your money there, that becomes an extra challenge to sort of move away. and, And it's one of those, you know, Oops, maybe we've got you uh, scenarios. But I, I think the thing about having a professional is it's a relationship, and you need to make sure that that relationship suits you.
0: Is it difficult, though, at times to get people, especially, I'll use the word millennials, although I, I'm just, that's sort of a catch all for younger people who are just starting in their careers who probably for many of them, they need every dime they make just to pay the rent and pay their bills. They don't have a lot of money left over for savings. Is it difficult these days to get them in the door in the first place to an investment?
3: I think it's important to consider intergenerational planning. I mean, not everybody has a perfect family relationship, but if you run under the assumption that a family is a, a cohesive communicative unit, I mean, one of the favorite things that I do is I'll, I'll speak to a, a client, a partner about their parents. And then about their children as well my favorite meetings are when we have grandparents parents and children in all at the same time so that we can plan and share those conversations so you bring up a good point about millennials they often don't get talked to very much about financial planning because there's this assumption that they don't have any money but the truth of the matter is is they'll either start to save that money or they may inherit it in the near future our parents and our grandparents like generations never before have saved money in retirement savings plans Or maybe they've purchased insurance and ultimately the millennials may be the beneficiary of those investments if that money suddenly gets lumped onto their onto their pocket one day you know at at an emotional time of their life if they've not had any relationship before if they've not had those conversations that can be a a big ask for them and so what we try to do is we try to talk about a framework that exists across multiple generations of, of family and one of the unfortunate thing about these ubiquitous commercials that you've been mentioning, Scott, is there's one that I recently saw while watching the Leafs the other night. And uh, it basically said, you know, are you still using mom and dad's advisor? And I I sort of looked at that and I I said, well, what's what's wrong with that? If they're having a conversation with you, that, that can go a long way. And if you're planning with mom and dad, that can often make sense. And you know, Some advisors may shy away from working with clients who haven't yet made any savings, but if that advisor is also the advisor of the parents, they're going to be far more comfortable having a conversation and doing some of that education.
0: But the suggestion would be that advisor is old and dusty and uses old ideas and you want something modern and i don't know if quicker or so i mean I, it, clearly the implication is that advisor doesn't understand you and your generation
3: well that may be a very good point point. and that may also be something that your that the millennials parents are concerned about as well but they're just stuck they're comfortable they've you know been friends with you know their advisor for some period of time and they feel comfortable but if they are looking to the future and if they're wanting to have conversations with their kids to make sure that they're well off. And every parent that I talk to certainly wants that for their kids. Then maybe it's time for the family to reconsider who their advisor is as well. And and to maybe make that transition in an effort to start planning. I had a wonderful meeting last week where I met with a a new gentleman in his uh, his late seventies and his two kids in their their forties. And the, the thing that I heard that I loved is that that meeting actually brought them together for the first time in over a month since christmas and they were having a meaningful adult conversation about finance and it, it felt incredibly comfortable and sometimes that can be a difficult impetus to get going but having those conversations as, as a family can help make everybody feel a little bit more comfortable and that's the thing that computers can't do they can't house everybody sitting around together they can't start that conversation and, and there's nothing wrong with being human and you know it's easier to be online, it's it's maybe a little safer for the first five minutes, but once you break down those barriers and have that human connection, I think it goes a long way because investing is not just numbers. It's also emotion and
0: psychology. we got to go. Not to be smart, but I'm sure that uh, that most kids, if their parents said, let's come and talk about our finances and the will may be involved, most people would show up for that discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, uh, Sean Moyer, Portfolio Manager at Mandeville Private Client. Really appreciate the time. We'll do this again. Yeah, it's wonderful to
1: speak with you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Christine Sinclair, Canadian soccer player, has just become today, and like within the last hour, the highest scoring soccer player internationally of all time. Male, female, doesn't matter. Highest scoring, which is kind of cool because I was thinking all day when I heard the news that she was the highest scoring woman, which is still a big deal. But this makes it I think a bigger deal, highest scoring ever of all time. Rick Zamperin from, well, from 900 CHML joins me. Rick, how are you? Hey, good to go. Thank, thank Good. Thanks for jumping in. Are, is Christine Sinclair now, I mean, it's been this way for a while that she's been one of the, if not the greatest female athlete from this country. Is she the most underrated athlete in Canada?
4: Ooh, great question. Uh, if she's not, she's certainly in the group, that's for sure. Um, You know, women's soccer has been on the rise over the last couple of decades, and it's no coincidence that it's mainly because of her and her talents and her goal-scoring exploits. And as I'm answering this question, I'm trying to think of other (laughs) females who would be in this category. Well, not even
0: females. I mean, there are men, too, who are underrated. But, yeah, I, I mean, we think of her when the World Cup rolls around, and we think of her when the Olympics are on. And generally, I don't think that Christine Sinclair's name, I mean, today, we're not doing that, but it's a qualifying, We, we just, she doesn't come up all that often otherwise, and boy, when you look at what she's done, she should.
4: Yeah, definitely. I mean, she has <clears throat> virtually single-handedly taken a program or a team, the Canadian National uh, Women's Soccer Team, uh, from, you know, a, a, a so-so kind of outfit to one of the top 10 uh, i think the ranked fifth in the world um in the world in the fifa rankings and yeah there's other players and it, you know there's, there's loving people on the pitch there's trainers there's coaches there's whatnot but her talent uh has been at the forefront and she has been even when they didn't have very good teams i mean she was still an extremely good player and still scoring goals at uh, what what today turned out to be a record-breaking pace and she really hasn't slowed down over the years. I mean, she is just a consistent goal-scoring machine. Uh, and, yeah, when you when you think about all the athletes that Canada has produced, the ones that are currently either in their prime or, or getting there, uh, or even those that are you know over, over the hill and they've seen their better days, I would think that Sinclair would probably be the most underrated. Because, as you mentioned, unless it's the Olympics or maybe the World Cup, we really don't pay attention to her or even really – women's or men's soccer it's it's only at those kind of premier global events and when we say oh yeah i remember this guy or oh, yeah I, I remember this uh, you know lady so yeah she'd definitely be in that conversation well
0: no w- with men's soccer there's a good reason why we don't pay attention because generally they've stunk uh, i mean our national team they really have and, and i'm i was trying to think of not maybe exclude for a second the players who may or may not be on our national team right now rick could you name Leaving aside the active players, could you name one former national men's soccer team player?
4: Well, Dwayne de Rosario comes to mind. All right, one uh, you know, <laughs> one of the all-time greats, and you know one that's uh, you know locally based, and that's John McCrane. yep. Uh, you okay. know, had, uh, that's one that uh, I, thought I thought of, 19- yeah. The 1986, you know, World Cup team—the only team that's made it to the World Cup. But yeah, I mean, apart from
0: Brian uh, Budd is the other one that comes to mind. Yeah. but that's go—that's three. We've got three.
4: Sure, I got Paul Stalteri as well. All right, uh, he was, you know, a, a defender who was, uh, uh, you know, an, an average player on the national scene, but at one point, you know, played a lot of caps. Uh, played a lot of caps. Uh, Jason Devos, uh, Craig Forrest, and that. Uh, so there's some names, but I mean, none of them are really household. Names You couldn't you couldn't go to 100 Hamiltonians and say, name me five Canadian men's soccer players, and they wouldn't be able to do it.
0: You know what's remarkable, and a lot of it has to do with Christine Sinclair, I bet you that for many Canadians, and I, I don't think I'm overstating this, I bet you for many Canadians, they could name as many current or former female national women's soccer team players as they could men. And that's yeah, that's probably. probably the only sport that you could do that in.
4: And that's based on their success, because <clears throat> the Canadian men's team has only been in one World Cup. I know they've been, you know, inching closer to getting there. And with our nation and, and the U.S. and Mexico hosting in 2026, uh, you know that 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 team, those players, will certainly be, you know, in the headlines. But uh, with the Canadian women's team, there's been World Cups, consistent World Cup appearances, uh, consistent Olympic appearances, and, and a couple of medals to boot. Um, so, yeah, you know, as because they have played uh, on the highest heights around the world, their names are in the headlines where the men's team simply has missed the boat in that regard.
0: The only—I'm trying to think of any, any other athlete, as we're talking, male or female from Canada, who would be—and I'm talking current. I mean, look, you can say, well, not as many people know who Nancy Green was, for example. Well, sure, but in her time, I don't think Nancy Green was underrated. I think everybody knew—or right. Fergie Jenkins or someone— Larry Walker, and he's not playing now, but he's been in the news recently, maybe. I mean, keep in mind, Larry Walker once lost a Lou Marsh trophy to a race car. Um, yeah. <laughs> so maybe he was underrated to some degree, but I just I can't think of another athlete who has been as consistently underplayed as Christine Sinclair, considering what she's done.
4: Yeah, I, I'll, I'll throw one into the heap, maybe not at the current moment, but maybe in about two to four years depending on what her team does at the Olympics <clears throat> and that would be Ke nurse you know locally she's pretty much done everything she's won a national championship with the Yukon uh, you know she had a taste of the WNBA playing in Australia has done some great things in in terms of putting her name in lights but in terms of you know Canada winning Olympic medals uh, obviously they won the FIBA World Championships not too long ago so she's been there but in a global impact in terms of You know, Canada basketball. She's not where Christine Sinclair is right now. Uh, She might be, but she's going to have, you know, a long way to go to get to that uh, kind of uh, level.
0: All right. Let me change tack a little bit here. I want to ask you this because there is a new report out that the Seattle expansion franchise in the NHL is closing in on a team name, that they have whittled it down, and there is a very solid, it seems, favorite, whether this is a red herring they're throwing at us to try and get people off the scent or whether this is legit, I don't know. But let me give you a bunch of names. These were the ones that were the favorites to be in consideration. And out of these, and there's about 10 of them, you tell me which one you would choose and which one you think is the one that is going to be the favorite. Here we go. The Seattle Sockeyes, Seattle Totems, Seattle Emeralds, Seattle Rainiers, Seattle Renegades, Seattle Kraken, Seattle Seals, Seattle Sea Lions, the Seattle Evergreens, Seattle Firebirds, Seattle Cougars, Seattle Eagles, Eagles, or Seattle Whales. Which one do you okay. think? Which one would you take <clears throat> first of all?
4: I, I remember blogging about this uh, when the team was granted the expansion team and they were they were you know kicking around nicknames and the one that stood out to me as you know it was a pretty cool name and a unique emblem or at least it could be a good logo would be the Seattle Totems. Um, I'm not sure how much traction that is received. Uh, the Seattle Emeralds was also a name that I thought, you yeah, know, it's kind of cool, it's the Emerald City. Uh, but the one I've been hearing a lot more of is the Seattle Kraken. And I'm not sure what a Kraken is, and even if it is, uh, you know, a, a habit or inhabited of, uh, of Seattle. Um, but I hear that's the one that's kind of making a lot of waves. I'm not sure if that's the favorite at this point, but I've heard that's kind of, uh, you know, risen to the upper echelons of uh, that uh, that list.
0: Well, you probably do know what a Kraken is because you've probably seen those commercials for, the, I think it's a rum or a vodka or something. It's a oh, legendary... It yeah, it's kind of a, an okay. octopus, a, a cephalopod-like sea monster of giant size in Scandinavian folklore, so says Wikipedia oh. that I pulled up here quickly. What? And yes, that is the one that apparently is the leading contender, is the favorite now, the Seattle Kraken. Hmm.
4: I'm Which, picturing the logo and I don't like it.
0: Well, I'm picturing the logo, and all I can think is they've got to have some sort of deal with the with the booze maker to like every every ticket gets you a bottle of that stuff to drink in the stands, which will make yeah. for a lively crowd. But uh, <laughs> um, I mean, you can't call them. I don't think in 2020. I don't think you can call your team the Cougars because. <laughs> Well, yeah, that, yeah. it's got to, it's, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, not, I, and I don't know about the totems. I don't know if, is that, would that be in 2020, would that be considered cultural appropriation to right. be doing? Yeah. I don't know if that's uh, sock guys. I suppose your your logo could look an awful lot like the Vancouver Canucks shoulder patch of the, uh, I don't know, the but Kraken, you know, and the seals, you I know, mean, you could look like the California golden seals all over, bring back those old uniforms, yeah. I suppose. I don't yeah. know. And the Firebirds, wasn't that, oh no, that was the Thunderbirds,
4: was there, or is there, uh, WHL? Yes.
0: Yeah, which probably yeah. ties into the Firebirds. Uh, Firebird, to me, you know what, uh, Firebirds, I loved it when Burt Reynolds drove one in Smokey and the Bandit, although yep. I think that was a Trans Am, yep, but I'm yep. not sure about a hockey team name, but. Um,
4: so would the plural of Kraken be Crack Eye?
0: <laughs> or is it <laughs> Kraken? Or just a crack. Just the crack. the crack. The the yeah, yeah the Seattle crack. We're, we're going to, doing it in honor of all the local drug dealers that are out there. We're just, <laughs> we're just going to call it the Seattle know. crack. Uh, uh, yeah. this,
4: is, this if it is Kraken, it would be yet another nickname that doesn't end in an F. In the NHL, So we have Lightning. What? We have Wild. No, I think there's another one.
0: Yeah. Let and me see it. here because you raise an interesting question. What is the plural of crack? Uh, by English rules, the plural of kraken is krakens. Oh, so there, there you go. go. So you can call them the Krakens, even though in Norwegian, apparently plural is Kraken singular. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, listeners are diving this deeply into the grammatical implications of, of what the team <laughs> name might be. But yeah, it's a. Um, it, it would be like, I, I still think, what do you call someone who plays for the wild? Are they a wild?
1: I what do you call someone who yeah. plays
0: for the Miami Heat? Are they a hot? <laughs> Like These are names Good question. you got to think these things through. The other thing, totally unrelated, is it not somewhat inappropriate or ridiculous the number of team names that are named after natural disasters? You've got yeah. the hurricanes, you've got the avalanche, you've got the, I mean, whatever, other ones. There's a bunch of them. And I'm thinking, I, you know, if, I mean, the ca- people in Carolina who've had hurricanes, do you want your team named after a natural disaster that has ruined yeah. your house and your community? Uh,
4: Constantly reminded of, you know, what is to come. (laughs) Yeah. Just around the corner, another hurricane.
0: Yeah, There you go. All right, one last thing I want to ask you about, and this is a piece that Steve Milton wrote uh, today, and it's about the CFL, and boy, this seems like we're delving into making things way more complicated than they have to be. I don't know if you saw this piece today, but the CFL is now under let me read this paragraph, under provisions of the CFL's labor agreement hammered out last spring and about to take effect there are now, and now I'm paraphrasing American players who have been with a team for a while and in the same community can be a new category so you've got national players you've got American players you've now got global players from their CFL 2 that they're trying to get people and now you're going to have veteran americans so they are canadians on paper so as you're building your roster you've now got to factor all these different things into who is going to be in your team and uh, is this not just complicating things
4: yes very much so and i i haven't seen the clarification on this and whether or not these american canadians or whatever they're going to call them uh are they going to be able to take the spot of a true canadian so as we know in the cfl you need seven canadian starters can you use one of these American Canadians as one of those Canadian starters? And if that is the case, we are going to see, and again, we haven't seen clarification, but we're going to see a lot less Canadian players in the CFL.
0: Is the, Does that fly with fans? I mean, are fans okay with that as long as their team wins, or do fans really care that there are Canadian players on the field?
4: I think, well, I think it all depends on what all the other teams are doing. If you have a, a roster that is stacked with American Canadians... And they don't need to start "quote unquote" true Canadians, uh, and they are, you know, 14 and, and four, and, and your team is four and 14 because you have true Canadians and not these American Canadians. I think that's when fans are going to say, "Hey, wait a minute! I mean, this is not this is not equal." Um, yeah, I'm I'm very leery of this.
0: Isn't that how the Baltimore Stallions were so good back in the day? Basically, they didn't have to yeah. have any Canadians. Yeah. And, and I'm not and, dumping on the Canadian players, but if you can go with all American players, pros and guys coming out of the NCAA, and not have to bring in any U Sports or anyone else who are, let's admit it, they're, they are not probably in a lot of cases as trained up. They, it takes them longer to get there because they haven't had the same. Uh, boy, th- th- this seems to me to be an advantage.
4: Yeah, I yeah. Again, I'd love to see the clarification. I haven't seen it yet. Maybe they're getting close to that, but yeah, I, I'm I'm not liking where they're going down. I mean. We're bringing in more global players. That's great. I'm not sure how that's going to grow the game other than, uh, you know, uh, marketing it to those, uh, you know, communities or countries. I'm not sure how many dollars you're going to get out of those. But that's taking a job from someone else and potentially another Canadian football player.
0: You know, I I talked to uh, an official at one point because I, I said to them, Do you actually, when the players are lining up, do you really check to make sure there are the right number of nationality people on the field? And I'm told, yes, we do. That somebody is of of the officials is really, truly monitoring to make sure you have the right number of Canadians on the field. And I'm thinking, what what are you doing to these officials? If now you've got four categories and you have to be, before the ball is snapped, you have to figure all this stuff out. And if it's wrong, throw a flag. I mean, it... But, boy, it, Rick, for the points you made, because we, I I think we do want Canadians to have a chance to play in the Canadian Football League. And for that, I, I boy, it, it's, to me, this is just adding layers that are unnecessary.
4: Yeah, and the number of Canadian starters have gone down over the last number of years. You know, at one point there was, I think it was 10 or 11, and it's gone down to 7, and now this potentially could produce it even further. And I know there has been talk of, you know, should the league reduce the number of Canadians as well? And I think that's what... No, it's a, it's a big part of what makes the CFL the CFL is that, you know, you have these Canadian football players. Most of them come out of the, you know, U-sports system, but there are some that go down to the NCAA and then come back up here. But, uh, you know, that's what makes this league and all the other different roles, obviously different from the NFL or any other league out there, is that there is a there's a, a wide splash of Canadiana uh, with, you know, the people that play the game.
0: Does it not also keep the pipeline going too, because if you start taking away jobs and taking away the belief that you may be able to play in the CFL, do people not, some players not just bail out? I mean, I I may stick around if I think that I'm good enough to get a job, but if I'm no longer believing that I may just decide to get out of here.
4: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you were in the youth sports system right now, and now there's, you know, this many, uh, uh, fewer positions uh, you know to, to be a starter or even get on the team you're either a you're not even going to pursue football any longer or or b you'll pursue it and then you know at some point realize you know what I'm just not good enough to be a starter I don't want to sit on the bench or a practice roster for a couple of seasons I might as well start my other career uh, whether it's business or whatever whatever you're going to go into but yeah that might further reduce the pipeline and that'll have an impact on you know places like McMaster and Western and uh, you know all these other you know Edmonton. And, Calgary, all these football powerhouses that have built amazing systems, but now you're basically promised one less spot or a couple of less spots in the CFL that might curtail a lot of athletes to look elsewhere.
0: Rick Zampern, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this, sir. You got it anytime. It is, um, yeah, the uh, Kraken, by the way. Go look it up. I mean, there could be some really cool logos if they decide to do it that way. Really cool logos. The Seattle Kraken? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, But you know what? It will not have anything to do with you or me or anyone else. It will have everything to do with market research on whether or not kids like the color scheme and are willing to buy the shirts and think the name is cool. Just like with the Raptors, just like when the San Jose Sharks came out with their teal, just like when the LA Kings went to their black and silver uniforms when Wayne Gretzky was there. This, is, this has nothing to do with whether it's a historic or cool name. It's got everything to do with how many kids will buy the product.
1: The Scott Radley Show. weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.
0: The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.